0: So I thought of another little story that uh, about streams and such. So I thought I'd tell that. It's our night for uh, Q&A and such, but um, we're a small group, so I'll make a little offering. There's a story of um, a couple of monks who are walking along, and they get to a river that they have to ford and walk across, and for some reason, there's a woman there who can't get across the river. I don't know what this situation is, but for some reason she can't. And so one of the monks uh, picks her up and carries her across and puts her down on the other side. And then they, the monks keep walking. And they walk and walk for a while, and the monk who didn't do the carrying is getting more and more tense, and finally he bursts out to his friend and says, how could you have done that back there? You know we have this very strict rules where we're not allowed to touch women, and yet you carried that woman across the stream. And the first monk said, oh, well, I put her down on the other side of the stream But it seems to me that you're still carrying her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a way in which we do this, right? We carry stuff long after. We could have just put it down and gone on, but the mind uh, has a different agenda. And so this is what we practice with the sitting on the boulder and letting the river flow by. You know, it's not like. If that didn't exactly happen for forty-five minutes, then you're a total failure. Actually, a lot of what is interesting is to observe why is it? What is the process of picking something up and not being able to just sit there? We learn a lot about the mind, and when we see how it is that it gets caught up in things, and um, you know what kinds of things it considers to be important to pick up, all of that, so I'll plant that as a little seed in case you um, have noticed that your mind has patterns around things that it picks up and what it does with that, but I don't want to talk for too long in case you guys have questions or comments. What's on your mind or puzzling or whatever today? Yeah, Rex.
1: Um, A week or two ago, I read an article by some scientists who found that much of what's special about humans and much of what causes our suffering is our ability to think about the future. And that got me, I picked that up.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> it's to okay it to pick down. things up when you're not meditating. <laughs> it's all in how you do it. But
1: and, and it seems to me that there's a tension between wisely planning for the future and fretting about it or worrying about it or mm-hmm. whatever. And you can't really do no planning for the future because that will cause suffering.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But worry about the future, you're creating your own suffering.
0: So... Yeah, so how to strike that balance. Yeah. It's a great question because it's something we all have to deal with. I mean, you, if you look at cases of kind of extreme cases, for example, of brain damage, you know, there are people who can't think about the future or who have no memories. Correspondingly, they can't think about the past. You know, that's been wiped out, that function in some way. Uh, they don't work very well as humans, you know, and they live in the present moment. And this even happens with some kinds of dementia where uh, it becomes impossible to have any, you don't have a short-term memory, basically. Uh, and it's not very, you know, it's really not an easy way to live. So um, it's clear that if to be a functioning human, we need to incorporate those functions of memory and also of some projection and planning just so we can... Navigate. Um, but you you said it exactly right, in that there's a way in which we could be doing that, but causing suffering because we're uh, being anxious around that, which is a kind of clinging, basically. In fact, the um, I think it's interesting that the fourth hindrance is called restlessness and and sometimes it's restlessness and remorse, which is about the past. And sometimes it's restlessness and anxiety, which is about the future. So you can sort of choose where your domain is for hindrance. I guess restlessness is in the present, and then we combine it with either of those. So I, I don't know. I think um, I think the the test is always if we're you know if we're feeling tension or getting wrapped up in something, and then it's a matter of loosening those fists. And if that seems difficult it's possible to look at what we might be clinging to. I mean, there it is. We've got the clinging happen, we, happening. We've got the anxiety. So we know that there is something in the present moment that we're clinging to. And so I've even used as a little mantra, what would I have to let go of at this moment to make this easier? It worked, I think I've said that here before. It works well, actually, whenever I'm struggling with something. What would I have to let go of? And often, um, speaking of the future, it's often my idea of how something ought to turn out. You know, it's like I have this image of what would be perfect <laughs> to unfold and it's not going that way or I think it's not going to go that way. And so, and of course, it you know, nothing might go the way I'm planning it. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm going to make it to the end of this session or the end of the next breath. So, um Starting to look at what we're clinging to, then, you know, that's, like I said, that doesn't have to be a self-condemnation. It can be information about what is it that I habitually cling to. Do you have a specific thing in mind that you're thinking of as you ask that?
1: Well, as I thought about that, I I recalled a pattern that drives people around me crazy, um, where at the beginning of some new idea or venture, I immediately start thinking of what could the worst possible outcome be. Uh
0: Uh-huh, yeah.
1: But, and and then I start figuring out, well...
0: Contingency plans.
1: Yeah. Is is, is there a way to, you know, avoid that?
0: Uh Uh-huh, okay.
1: And what mostly happens for me is I go... Well, yeah, the worst possible thing either isn't that bad, or there's a way around it, and then I let go.
0: Uh huh. Okay.
1: But my process of thinking that through drives the people around me crazy because they think I'm immediately going to. Oh, uh-huh, you're
0: catastrophizing. Thing yeah. Uh huh. Well. Um, so. Yeah, this is a pattern. I mean, this is a, a way of interacting with experience. I've done stuff like that, and often it's so that I won't I won't have to experience disappointment. You know, it's like I'm trying to avoid pain, basically. Um, and so, you know, if if it's a relatively mild thing, you can just observe that process unfolding. If you're having difficulty with relationships because of it, you might not want to verbalize it quite so much, <laughs> and that's a Someone matter of restraint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not. It's not just in an abstract way I can't say, oh, that's a terrible thing to do, because like, if you're going on a hiking trip where it might actually be dangerous or something, then, yeah, you ought you know, you to say, well, I think I'm going to bring a first aid kit with me. That would probably be wise. <laughs> so, um, but it's also true that that can be very limiting to always be thinking about what might go wrong. It points to an underlying pattern of fear, basically. It's, there's some kind of fear there. And um, fear is a form of suffering, even if it gets allayed. Yeah. Is there any more? I see Heidi moving your hand. Okay.
2: Well, I, I do some of that also and tend to uh, be kind of a compulsive planner that when I catch it, I realize it's a combination of fear and delusion because I'm always trying to get control. Yeah. And like I'm deluded that I think that I can get control if I think it through and if I rehearse what I'm going to say, you know, it's, and it it does cause me suffering and.
0: It's a little it's, bit of stress. Yeah. It's,
2: yeah. It's, it's about anxiety yeah. and trying to somehow control the way things are and. It doesn't
0: doesn't work that way. Yeah. Well, actually, you've pointed out something um, helpful in that fear is actually a form of aversion. So it goes Mm -hmm. under the category of of greed, aversion, and delusion. It would fall mostly into aversion. But um, one thing that's not always mentioned is that greed and aversion contain delusion. They have to. Mm -hmm. Um, It has to be there underneath them for those to even be there because we have to assume that there's somebody that can gain or push away. You know, There's some uh, separation happening there. There can also be pure delusion that doesn't have those two in it. So what you've noticed is that aversion has delusion in it, mm-hmm. by highlighting both of those. Yeah, and it's exactly about control. That's a classic aversive issue.
3: It was a perfect segue into the, this question that I was debating on sharing the <laughs> so... Um, and I'm going to try to articulate it, but um, sometimes I, I notice where I'll come across something, whether it's an idea or an image or um, a thought that I, <clears throat> I know I want to... Um, I know I need to let that go, uh, and there'll be an attempt to let it go immediately and actually to, to really dive into my practice of, okay, I need to, you know, return to the present moment, you know, return to whatever anchors me to the here and now that, you know, kind of seeking refuge from that thing that came up in a way, and the, but what I've noticed that sometimes in in the act of... Uh, trying to let it go it reifies it Mm -hmm. it makes it a thing to let go of and it gives it some weight all of a sudden Mm -hmm. and makes it it, in a subtle way it becomes another form of uh, even deeper attachment
0: yeah this is why pushing away is the same as clinging it's a form of clinging Adyashanti says um you think that you resist things because they are there, but actually they're there because you resist them. <laughs> Do you have a question in there? Because you, you've highlighted something that's true. Yeah. No, it, yeah. just, just, just a helpful reason, comment. Uh, yeah. Observation. Yeah, it's a great observation Is that the act of opposition mm-hmm. reifies. Yeah.
3: hard to,
0: to be completely like water. From that. Yeah. I mean, the task is then to turn, kind of turn toward instead of away, but not easy if it's something we're not comfortable with and the mind is saying, get it away or I don't want that. or Yeah. Yeah. Um, you did use the phrase in your, so, somewhere in your description uh, trying to let go of something and that's hard to do. It's, it's hard to actually make ourselves let go of something. It's kind of like trying to fall asleep. In the end, it's more letting go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: More of a comment or observation, your, your, your river examples strike home for me, because I was a river guide and a trainer for 20 years. Oh. Um, but, but particularly around the rock in the river, I, I was reminded that while training raft guides, of course, you get stuck on rocks a lot in the river. And the trainees often become very stressed out about that Immediately trying to find some solution to the problem and, and often make things worse in the process and so on and so forth. And one of our mantras as trainers became, take a deep breath, this is free parking.
0: Free parking, right. <laughs> <laughs> are, are we going anywhere?
1: Is anyone in any danger? You no. Know,
4: look at the clouds. Free
0: parking. That's nice. Yeah. Those were Floating along in the river of practice. Also, sometimes we get stuck, <laughs> but you don't need to panic about that. Huh. Actually, I'll try this out on you. I've heard a, an analogy of um, the four components of wise effort um, being. Uh, somebody else who was a river guide said, "Oh, that's exactly what we train people also, because the you know the four components of wise effort are to." Uh, prevent unwholesome mind states that you don't have, to let go of ones that you do have, to um, encourage the arising of wholesome states that aren't present, and to maintain ones that are. And so I think the river equivalent is um, get out of trouble, (laughs) stay out of trouble, uh, learn new skills, and maintain the skills you have. Does it sound like a pretty fair summary of what you need to learn to be a good river person?
1: I, I might have characterized it slightly differently, but that's, a good, that's one way. Mm. I, a lot of what we teach guides on the river is to focus, uh, learn to focus on where you want to go and not on where you don't want
0: to go. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> so how does this relate to your um, trying to figure out the worst thing that can happen <laughs> and prevent it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well.
2: <laughs> well, I've heard one saying that worrying is praying for what you don't want to happen.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> that's a nice way to say it's it. It's Kind
2: of like don't focus on where you don't want to go.
0: Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Well, since we're talking about mental patterns, I'll um, I'll give a little review of something that I might teach on Saturday. I'm doing a day long on uh, on change, basically, how we encounter and work with change, in case anybody has any change in their life. You may have noticed. <laughs> no? Okay, well. <laughs> um, and I heard a very nice teaching from Guy Armstrong that was about the... It was actually about the Buddhist personality types, but he, the way he framed it was that... Um, Basically, uh, you're born into this world somehow, right, as a sort of a sensitive being that has very uh, few defense mechanisms initially. And you encounter what? You encounter a world where sensations come in kind of randomly and you have no control over whether they're pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, but you probably don't even notice those ones. And, yeah, you basically have kind of, you've just been thrown into this. And so that's a pretty good description of what it's like also when you sit down and meditate, right, is that you open and you just get this stream of pleasant and unpleasant. Now, we think we have strategies by now, but you can watch your mind. And um, so Guy Armstrong was making the case that the the Buddhist personality types, of which are broadly greed, hatred, and delusion, are uh, defense mechanisms that get picked up you know, like a habit pattern. So if you were subject to a random stream of pleasant and unpleasant, what are the options? One is try to get all the pleasant. (laughs) You know, just focus on that. And so that's the greed personality type. You know, and then the other, another one is try to get rid of all the unpleasant. Push it out of the way, avoid it. Uh, And that would be the aversive type. And then the third option is zone out. (laughs) You know, just block it out. I, don't, I can't deal with that. And that's the delusion type personality. Now we all have all three of these strategies going on in different times because we all have all three of those underlying tendencies in our mind. But you may notice that you have a particular favorite among these. And it's also said that you can, if you're not sure which type you are, you can check what you do when you walk into a room and if you walk in like you've never been in a room before, and you walk in, and if you see, if you say, "Wow, look at those beautiful yellow walls. That's really great," and the bamboo bamboo floor, fantastic, and I really like those zafus, the way they're all black and they match. I'm going to get some like that for home because you know I really like that style. So that's the greed type. You know, focus on what you like. <laughs> and then the aversive type walks in and says. Wow, the ceiling's pretty low in here. It's a little claustrophobic. I don't know. Uh, there's a pole in the middle of the room. That's a pretty lame design. Who thought of that? <laughs> and, you know, those fans are so low, you could if you're really tall, you could probably nick your head on them. You've got to be careful about that. So that's the aversive type. <laughs> and then the delusion type um, probably just has a fine time, and then somebody asks later, after they've been here for three months, oh, what what color are the walls in that room? And they say, "Huh, I never really noticed. <laughs> Not sure. So, it's a little humorous. But uh, there, there are actually descriptions in the Vasudhi manga of how each of these types... Actually, the Vasudhi manga has more types. They have six because they break each one into two versions. But um, they even have descriptions of how you're going to sweep a path and how you're going to eat and other such things. And... What kind of retreat setting is the best for you to gain enlightenment, just in case you yeah. wanted to know? Mm-hmm. Sounds
4: good.
2: <laughs> Do you remember the, the kind of retreat environments?
0: Oh, you want to know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we'll start with the aversive type, since that's the most common uh, kind of person, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, in the Vipassana scene. So aversive types need very beautiful retreat settings. Um, All their needs taken care of, really calm, beautiful, spacious, fluffy cushions, good food, um, plenty of staff to take care of all your needs immediately. And the reason for this is so that you can really discover that aversion is actually a mind state. It is not inherent in how horrible the world is, because the world is perfect. There can't be anything wrong with it. But the mind, the aversive mind, is still going to find stuff, and then you start realizing, okay, maybe this is a little over the top. Um, so that's the theory, at least. And then the um, the deluded type needs a space that's very safe. Actually, um, delusion types have a hard time getting settled down and really. Um, Trusting themselves, that's what they need to work on is trusting their own experience. So it's similar to the aversive type. actually, they would need a setting that was very safe, so it should be calm and quiet and not, um, you know, not claustrophobic and not unpredictable, etc. So those kinds of things. it's I think it's somewhat similar. Now, unfortunately, for those of you who are greed types, uh, the greed type should practice in a setting that is, run-down, dirty, terrible, smelly, uncomfortable, um, not enough, you know, too cold, too hot, something like that. So very uncomfortable so that they can uh, get over that that indulgence in the physical um, safety and security and comfort. So, you know, places like the forest refuge don't really help green types get over that. But... It's okay, usually we all have lots of things to work on, so I don't worry about it too much. But I I thought it was interesting that they thought that was important enough to write down if you really wanted to challenge yourself. And don't be so sure that you know your type either, by the way. uh, Mary Grace Orr, (coughs) who was the founder of this group, um, thought for years and years that she was a greed type. Like all the way through her teacher training, uh, with Jack Cornfield, and she used to tell him, "Oh, I'm a greed type," and he would always just kind of say, "Uh-huh." And she later realized that he was not buying into this because she finally realized she's an aversive type. But it took her a very long time to either see that, that or admit her. to that.
2: Hmm? All of us that knew
0: her. Was her yes, of course, other people can often tell. <laughs> although, don't be too quick to judge others either. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's it's interesting, and and we do all have all three tendencies. And I also think that different ones probably come forth at different times in your life, like you may start out where your situation is just such that your aversion is being triggered all the time, and then maybe, if you let go of that lifestyle and adopt a more Dharma lifestyle, then uh, some layers, you know, that layer might relax and you'll see more of something else underneath. Partly genetic yeah, you, you probably get born into some tendencies also, I and mean, we have proclivities in our minds, mm-hmm. whether you call it genetic or karma or rebirth or whatever uh, we don't we 're not blank slates when we're born <laughs> not anyone who has more than one child knows that. <laughs>
4: Yeah. Your, um, tonight, when you used the analogy of sitting in the river um, and watching it go by, I, I took that as an invitation to do open awareness practice because mm. my, my daily practice has been more um, mindfulness of breath generating samadhi uh, and sort of that. So I was like, okay, well, let's let's do some open awareness. And it was um, uh, interesting to watch intention because mm. that one of the, the Particular little take on open awareness. That I tend to practice is uh, Shins and Young's instructions for do not, what he calls do nothing, mm-hmm. which is um, you know mostly do nothing. Except if, if you happen to notice that you have an intention, drop the intention. Uh-huh. And okay. That's, uh, you know, so it's like there's, but don't scan for having intentions. It's like <laughs> <laughs> yes, only if it becomes um, prominent, and if somehow. you can't drop it. Um, that means it's you can't drop it, so it's fine. Just uh-huh. watch it. So yeah. it's sort of there's all these caveats, but basically there's this sort of you notice an intention, drop it, otherwise do nothing. So okay. that's that's what I do, and it was um, it was int- I don't know, it was uh, very interesting to see that sort of when an intention is was present that I owned. Sometimes there's intentions present that I actually don't own, like they're just intentions that are happening, and that's like, okay, well that's fine. I just watch them, but if there's an intention that I'm owning, I could really see how that those are these little places where I start creating
3: stories mm-hmm. that, that that the
4: uh, that intentions that I own are the places where some little you know boundary gets set up, some little story about the boundary, some little um, that that and that in general when there weren't intentions that I owned that happening then there wasn't a whole lot of storytelling. So that, and I just, that was a, uh, just an
0: observation I'm sharing, I guess, that yeah. I was noticing tonight. That's interesting. And when you say intentions or intentions <laughs> that you own, how do you recognize an intention? What characterizes it?
4: Um, a uh, uh, an, I guess like an active movement uh-huh. to, you know, think something, or solve something, or move away from something, so something that's like a, um, you know, uh, active choice-making, I guess, where I'm um, owning the choice-making.
0: So wanting or not wanting, in some way, moving toward, moving away from. Right. And then owning it means you're actually doing it.
4: Owning it means I'm
0: doing it. You're doing it, yeah.
4: Right, as opposed to, um, you know, sometimes with open awareness practice, um, which I haven't been doing a lot lately, but in the past when I've done it, I found it interesting how you can, you know, if you do it a lot, or when I, when I was doing it more, um, you could get into these spaces where,
0: uh, like, thoughts are sort of like little uh, wind-up toys, where, mm-hmm. like, the, the mainspring of the thought, which is the thing that drives it along, was not, like, it was doing itself. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't, and you could just sort of watch,
3: like you know, the springs would get
4: wound up, and then the toy would be released, and eventually the spring would wind down, and the toy would disappear, and it really has nothing to do
0: with me. Like yeah, it's, just <laughs> it's really empowering to see um, thoughts that way. Yeah, and it was. Uh, yeah.
4: So, uh, anyways, uh, so that but what I mean that's what I mean by owning mm-hmm. the intention is when I'm owning the little spring. Yeah. it's like I'm in there going like making that thought move along uh-huh. um, as opposed to just like uh, just let like the spring do
0: its job. Oh, interesting. Um. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, of course, there's still the background uh, t- intention to do open awareness practice, yes. which is presumably operating.
4: Right, right. Yeah. I'm not sure what it means <laughs> to completely drop that.
0: Someday that'll echo, too. <laughs> <laughs> that's good.
2: Finding equanimity and um, freedom from attachment to view is very hard to come by. Mm. These times, with especially with the, the news, with today's news, is like grinding in my mind. <laughs> very hard to let go.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so there's a way we can, you know, open to the, Passion and the pain and the mm-hmm. you know, the truth of wow, this is the way things are going now. But it's, it's definitely I the advanced practice. Much. Yeah, it's the advanced practice to separate that pain from the from any suffering that might be happening. And we, you know, we we don't again and again, and that's that's part of the practice too.
4: For practicing with that, because yeah, that you know, reading the front page of the newspaper is my guaranteed like you know duca. stress. Like, oh, I need a big jolt of like aversion and upset. Let me just look
0: at. The newspaper. Yeah, let me just look at what's going on. Yeah, yeah. I um, mean, there are there are two, kind of two classes of response, I think, to external dukkha like that. Um, one of them is compassionate action. So, you know, saying, well, I can't change decisions that are being made and all this weird stuff happening at the top, but I can write letters, donate money, go out and talk with people, um, anything to um, put some energy in a direction that's more helpful. And this is part of the idea that there's a, you know, the world is a large, flow of energy and intention and in mind and uh, everyone makes a contribution to that and that's the same motivation that says well if I you know if I start speaking more wisely then it's going to ripple out and affect other people there will be less harmful speech in the world if I don't do it and so you know in the same way there will be more positive energy in the world if I'm out there putting it out So this can be a motivation to do something helpful. And it's also a motivation simultaneously to not do that in a way that's angry or fearful because then we're adding more of that to the world. And is that what the world really needs right now? So that's kind of one class is to actually take action and add that to the world. Another response that's equally valid and which we might choose, we can choose either one at different times is to use the external world as a motivator for practice. And, um, and say, wow, this is my chance to really develop mindfulness or to um, to say what the world really needs is more people who are even more stable. I'm going to go do samadhi practice. I'm going to go on a three-month retreat because the world needs more people at this time who've gone on three-month retreats. Also a perfectly valid response. Um, if if the development of the Dharma had to wait until the world didn't have some kind of a crisis going on for people to decide it was okay to sit and go on three-month retreats, Dharma would have died long ago. There's never been a time in history when that there wasn't stuff like that going on somewhere. So we all make our choices about that. and um, And they're all good. It's good to go out and do things, and it's good to cultivate the mind and heart. And so... We don't want to add more judgment to the world about which one should be being done by a given person. Does that help at all? I'm reminded of something that um, Kobanchino, was it? Or was it Suzuki Roshi? One of the major Zen teachers of the last century said that when a person has the deep realization that they are completely responsible for their life and how it's going to unfold and how they live it a person like that sits down for a while you know and there's a way in which practice is about really taking responsibility for this body and mind we you know we can't at first when we're children obviously that's a different relationship but And then there's the growing up, the sort of natural maturing of the body physically, so we become an adult. But did we become an adult inside, or are we still thinking that there's stuff outside that's oppressing us and being our parent and so forth? And we all, at least many of us, have parts like that still. And there comes a moment when, you know, it may take a while even in practice, when you just look in the mirror and say, I'm completely free, actually, and not because I'm oppressed by habits in my mind, but hypothetically, completely free, and this life is completely mine to do as I wish or as I'm able. And then you start thinking, what's really important? And it's a process. It's a long process. But it's, uh, it's humbling, and the mind can continue to mature for our whole life, actually we take that on? Along those lines,
1: one of the things that helps me from time to time is re- to realize that even the most powerful person in the world suffers.
4: Mm-hmm. And they sometimes
3: have often, maybe act out
1: still
0: worthy of our yeah it's a big step to make that last phrase but yeah in the end um, all humans just want to be happy and some of them are doing it in the really really wrong way the opposite of what would actually work and for that there's even more compassion in some sense And, you know, we, there are some leaders, yeah, that are very damaged, very much suffering a lot of clinging and identification and binding up in that mind and heart. And amazingly, um, we live in a society where that is not perceived and, you know, folks like that can get into power. in various ways that's allowed. and so you know it filters all down to many different levels of you know, not not seeing or being afraid and allowing somebody to go forward when they whether they should be stopped and all kinds of things. So there's a lot of and then you know when it starts getting down to that level of what was what was allowed um, to go on around us, then we start seeing in ourselves, oh, I have ways that i can I can be cowed into things. Uh, I have ways that I have fear, and maybe even I have ways when I act out, also, just not at the same scale. <laughs> so we start, that empathy comes from knowing that those qualities are in our heart also, just maybe at a much reduced level, for which we can be thankful. But um, that again spurs practice. Wow, I don't want this to grow. It's that wise effort, and again. and of course connecting with other people who can support us we don't have to be doing this completely alone that's why we come to places like this and so forth Well, it seems like we need to end on a little bit happier note. <laughs> um, there is a... Um, yeah, maybe I'll just end with a little um, quote that's often used, a little chant um, used in Thailand, actually used at funerals, but um, it's... Uh, speaking of a happy note to end <laughs> on. No, but it's a—it's about truth, and it's about the happiness that comes just from knowing the truth. And so um, the Pali is Anicca Vata Sankara paravaya, Damino Upachitoa Niruchanti Desang Vupasamo Sukho. And it means all conditioned things are impermanent. They are of the nature to arise and pass and those who understand this truth deeply will live happily. So it's interesting that um, it points to, not to a false happiness or a glossed over happiness, but to happiness of seeing the truth, that everything changes. As things get worse and worse, then the direction they may go is to get better and better. We don't know. It goes back and forth. But just seeing the change, seeing the inconstancy, so much of our suffering comes from imputing permanence to anything. It's going to be like this forever. It's not. (laughs) Whether it's happy or sad, it's not going to be like that forever. And... This is back to that stream of pleasant, unpleasant, positive, negative, happy, sad. One way to deal with that is to open to the truth. We talked about the personality types of the sort of defense mechanisms that we do, but the awake, the way of waking up, uh, defeats all of those personality issues, which never really work, right? You can't get all the pleasant, you can't get rid of all the unpleasant, and you can't block it out. So what's the solution? is to wake up to it and gain the strength to do practices that allow you to be with things as they really are, to be with that stream as it really is, positive, negative, hopeful, hurtful, life, death, etc. Um, And when we can hold all of that, there's a kind of happiness that comes from that that's independent of the conditions. That's what the Buddha pointed at. And the practices we're doing will lead us there.